0: You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast.
1: Good evening um, and welcome to this panel event um, here at the beautiful M Pavilion. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the Yalak Willam as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yalak Willam are part of the Bunurong, one of the five major language groups of the greater Kulin Nation. We pay respects uh, to their land, to their ancestors and their elders ...both past, present and future. I'd like to um, briefly, I think, just give further pause, though... ...to this process of acknowledging space and ownership. Um, Particularly, I think, in the context of tonight. This evening we're discussing the intense occupation of space... ...by protest and resistance, um, as well as violence. So, I think it's pertinent to acknowledge... ...that both protest and violence are inextricably linked to Melbourne's black history and that sovereignty was never ceded. In talking about space, um, as we will many times tonight, um, I want you to also think about the space that we are collectively also creating here tonight together for the next hour or so in this temporary structure. And I want to create um, a safe space for people to listen. And also, I suppose, in that context, just give a general content warning that the discussion tonight will include themes of gendered violence and may refer to an event or to a woman that has died. Um, However, I do want to emphasise, I think, that the discussion will be mostly focused on what can be done and thinking about what we're doing in the broader movement at a systemic level and learning and hearing from the panelists' experience in their respective fields. Um, If anybody does feel overwhelmed about anything they've heard tonight, um, uh, please come and speak to one of the panellists, really, during the break. Um, You're kind of in the right space. (laughs) They are gender violence um, experts. Um, I'd also ask that if you feel like sharing anything, there will be a Q&A at the end of this panel event. Um, But please be mindful of the experience of others when you talk. Okay, so... Thanks to Empavilion for hosting us in this beautiful space and to our um, two interpreters, Luke um, and Erin, who are here tonight as well. Um, I'd also like to flag that I'm very grateful to the Equality Institute and to Annie, um, who has designed the very fancy workshop uh, materials which are going to take place um, after the panel event. So please stick around for that if you can. Uh, primarily though I'm of course very grateful for um, the wonderful um, panelists that are here tonight and the immense contribution that they've made in their respective fields um, and for giving their time and so without further ado I will move to introductions for each of them um, I think in the panel event um, uh, blurb I said that the panel will feature academics writers um, and activists and Shakira Hussein is actually all three of those things. So I have <laughs> cheated somewhat uh, in that. <laughs> uh, uh, Shakira Hussain is a McKenzie postdoctoral fellow at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Her research focuses on Muslim women, gendered violence and racialised political discourse. She completed her PhD at the Australian National University and is a regular media contributor on issues including gender, multiculturalism and Islam and has featured in several programs uh, and media out- outlets including Crikey, The Australian and ABC Online. In 2016, Shakira wrote From Victims to Suspects, Muslim Women Since 9-11 and I'm told that there's a, a, an edition coming out early next year of that as well, a further edition.
2: Yeah, because just as about as soon as I published it, there was Brexit, there was Hanson Mark II, and there was the Trumpocalypse within months, so it was due for an update. Just we, we need an update.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, her essays have also been published in Meandjin, the Griffith Review, and the Best Australian Essays. So thank you, Shakira, for being here. Um, unfor- yes, please. Um, Unfortunately, one of the panellists, Pia Saveri, is unable to be here this evening. Um, Pia's, um, unfortunately, one of her got young kids and one of her young kids came down with um, gastro this afternoon. I think I'm share- oversharing too much <laughs> with that, probably. Um, which is interesting because one of the first questions I was going to ask Pia is like, you know, what? what's one of the challenges of being a union organiser and a woman? And I feel like she's almost answered that question by her absence and looking after her kids. So... Unfortunately, Pierre can't be here. Um, however, um, I'd like to also introduce uh, Jessamine Gleason, uh, Dr. Jessamy Gleason, sorry, who recently completed her PhD at Swinburne University with a specific focus on feminist activism in online environments. Outside of this, she runs her own business as an organizer and manager and works alongside independent artists, musicians, and writers to organize and schedule their specific projects and workloads. Jessamy is also a passionate activist and having previously contributed her time and campaigns um, and to campaigns and events such as Slut Walk Melbourne, Girls on Film Festival, the Our Parks Rally and Reclaim Princes Park Vigil, and Melbourne's Women's March. She has appeared at the Australian International Documentary Festival, the Feminist Writers Festival, and the Cyber Health and Safety Summit, and her work has appeared in several media publications. So, thank you, Jessamy, for being here. For me. <laughs> um, and just finally, Annie Lamont um, at the very end there. Um, Annie Lamont is a Violence Prevention Specialist and is the Director of Policy and Communications for the Equality Institute. Um, prior to this, she worked in Rwanda on the Nike Foundation's Girl Effect program, which ran a magazine and radio program made by and for girls. At the global level, she worked for the UK Department uh, for International de- uh, for International Developments' What Works to Prevent Violence Against Women program, and for the United Nations Partners for Prevention's program in Asia and the Pacific. So, thank you, Annie. <laughs> So, before I I throw, I guess, the first question over to our highly esteemed um, panellists, I just wanted to put a bit of context around why we're here this evening. So, in various ways, uh, both public and private, space is being negotiated. Struggles over space reveal the implicit hierarchies, the rules and the exclusions in order to maintain particular visions of a city. The valuing of some social groups over others is maintained through our interactions and access to differentiated spaces of a city. Inclusion for groups, including women, is often uh, only gained through concerted social struggle, demanding the right to be seen, to be heard and to directly influence state and society. Feminist movements have, for decades, been claiming space and asserting rights through both strategic action and everyday practices including demonstrating in public to demand better uh, access and rights, and have organised marches in Western cities to take back the night in protest against sexual threats in public spaces since the 1970s. Inspired by the radical feminist Andrea Dworkin, the first march was initiated in 1978 in the US, and such marches are still being organised, including here in Melbourne, with Reclaim the Night. These demonstrations have been propelled onto a global scale, Women are protesting against sexual violence around the world. But despite this, there's been no perceptible decline in confrontations and political implications for this issue. At Sweden's 2014 8th of March demonstration, many feminist protesters were attacked by Nazis and more recently other vigils have been publicly vandalised. We've walked we've counted, we've organised, we've held candles and we've cried. We've even had a royal commission and yet it's almost the end of 2018 and this month alone a woman has died almost every two days because of violence. This provides a sobering cause for reflection. What's happening? How how can and do we simultaneously remember, collectivise and organise? Reflecting on this issue often raises a dichotomy for people how can we represent women as both victims and active, powerful participants in urban life? Who are we mourning or demonstrating for? Um, And so without wanting to sort of suddenly just turn to someone to answer that question, (laughs) um, Annie, can I ask you to have a think about those comments and perhaps start by saying or asking beyond the symbolic act of resistance, what is the... Uh, ...the importance of increasing women's visibility in public spaces?
3: Mm, mm. Um, just a light throwaway. <laughs> yeah. um so I think to provide some context, the the kind of work that we do with the Equality Institute, and that I my background is in international development, and I think in the international space there's a lot of evidence around how we move beyond just visibility, and I I, I want to stress that I think that visibility is uh, is important and is um, a valid endpoint in itself because we have every right and a need to be able to occupy space and and stand that ground and just be seen. Um, But I kind of want us to move beyond just visibility and to start to think about how do we, um, through our public planning processes, through every step along the way as to how spaces, parks... Um, public usage um, transport, how women are involved in every step of the way of the planning, the usage, the economic benefit that comes from all of those aspects. And what I can say from the international context is that we are developing prevention programs that really start to think about and develop um, those mechanisms to ensure that that women and girls are involved along every part of the chain and the result is, the result is sort of better for women in terms of their usage but it, it leads to reductions in rates of violence. So, for example, and there's, there's a lot of examples um, that I could draw on but um, one of the examples is a program that runs um, UN Women runs called Markets for Change that's in Fiji and the Solomons and the way that it operates is yes, we know that women need to get to markets and marketplaces need to be physically safe spaces so that they can sell their wares and, and make money. But if you just if you just take it as a public infrastructure problem and just fix lighting or just fix, you know, thoroughfares, it doesn't it's not enough. And so the program that's been developed there. Is has gotten women and girls involved in every step of the way from mapping out what are the road usages that you need to get to a marketplace. How do you... Like, what are the safety aspects that feature along your route? When you get to the marketplace, what are the public infrastructure needs of that space, from lighting to safety programs? But then it's also about getting using those spaces as a way to get women then involved in in the councils and the bodies that run those spaces. And then that's kind of evolved into shifting the economic factors around those spaces as well, so that from that program they're now developing different ways of, um, like MPay, like electronic paying systems. So all of that... you know, is kind of a comprehensive approach that not only kind of fixes that space, but then leads to the, like, starts to address all of the multiple drivers that we know lead to violence against women. So it's putting women in leadership positions, making them public figures within their community, improving their economic access, um, putting, uh, I think the the bit, the large part, is putting women in decision-making and community-building spaces. Like that is such a huge part of reducing violence against women. So I guess, um, you know, to me, like visibility is important, but we need to start thinking about these comprehensive systems and how we in Australia can start ensuring that that happens along every step of the of the public planning and and usage schemes. And I don't think that's happening enough yet.
4: Mm. Jessamy, did you have something to say? Yeah, I just want to add, you're you're completely right. I thought that um, so we don't end up with marches, we don't obviously end up with vigils as well, ideally, but the process taking it back more steps and considering it right from the start, how do you build things or how do you factor this into spaces Mm. to ensure that um, women are involved in every single step of the process so we're not left with a march demanding to claim space, or we're not left with online ca- kind of campaigns... ...demanding to claim online space, that those things are actually factored in. Just as a broader part of it, because women aren't a minority in that sense. It's not like there's five of us. It's, it's a lot of consultation that goes on and consideration... ...because we're not used to understanding that the default is beyond a white, straight male. But if we do consider that, then the spaces should be shaped accordingly.
3: And I think it's also really important to think about, um, you know, the the politics around that, I think particularly around public usage space, there's kind of, like, there's a nice win for politicians, there's a nice, like, there are easy design, easy de- design solutions of put more lighting in the park, get more police on the street, but that... Like that doesn't fix the chain of the problem, and it doesn't sort of uh, it loses the opportunity that we have to sort of again think about every single driver of violence against women and use the use these opportunities and sort of stop you know, stop political processes from just being like, oh, well, we'll whack up some lights, like the issue, bandaid on it, yeah, 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 (laughs) Yeah. lights, cameras, (laughs) done
4: (laughs) exactly,
2: exactly, Shakira. Yeah, I was thinking on the visibility issue and actually I had been writing about this on an unrelated topic for a lot of women the problem is not so much needing to be made visible as being hyper-visible mm-hmm. and being hyper-visible makes you a target as I learnt very young as a brown skinned child in a hegemonically white and Queensland too, so even more white than Melbourne or <laughs> Sydney You know, it makes you a target for all kinds of Let's just say bullshit. You know whether it's racist harassment, but also sexualized harassment as well. You're seen as not the trophy that the blonde girls are, but you're certainly seen as sort of at the same time, you know, a virgin who knows nothing about sex, but also has the, all the skills of the Kama Sutra just waiting to be awakened by the right randy white guy. <laughs> and um, yeah. and so there was that form of hypervisibility, which I was, as I said, always very conscious of. And I would hear middle-aged and most usually white women complaining about having become invisible, you know, not as in they wanted more male attention, but they couldn't get the waiter to bring them their coffee. They wouldn't be able to get attention from shoppers. And I'd be like, I can't wait, you know, please bring it on. And and in travelling in countries where brown skin was more than normal, I absolutely loved being able to like melt into the crowd and felt like putting on a Harry Potter invisibility cloak you weren't you know every classroom I ever went into you could see the teacher go oh what's that little one you know what's the story there kind of thing. and but I have to say as I hit my much I, I thought you know if middle Ages brings invisibility then bring it on but as I finally hit my much anticipated middle years I was also becoming uh, even more visible than ever with the well i'd had multiple sources for a long time, but it had developed to the point where i need when i 'm out in public now to carry this thing so for one thing makes me even more hyper visible as ever and for another thing, like it 's somehow seen as the helping hand that becomes a quick opportunistic grope. so it 's a different type of harassment you know that i hadn 't particularly experienced before that 's kind of over before you quite realize it 's happened, let alone have time to make a fuss you know and uh, you, you know and sorry, just trying to help and you know and and supporting your bum is the safest way to get you out of the tram mm-hmm. you know and so yeah, I agree about visibility and I and street process in all parts of the world from women demanding their you know as, as particularly places where um, women are told that public space is not somewhere that they ought to be be in that they have you know, that they ought to be confining their role to, to the private sphere. And particularly for Muslim women too, who wear headscarf or visibly Islamic dress and are being told, Oh well it's all right to dress like that at home, but not out on the street in public you know, where you're bringing your religion into and it, and it makes Australians feel all threatened and like their country's been invaded and Sharia law is just around the corner and yada, yada, yada and will <laughs> discipline you into taking that off. So, yeah, absolutely. And since that harassment, there's, there's been a definite uptick since 9-11 in the number of women wearing hijab despite the fact that the harassment has become all the more overt and all the more threatening
4: never a perfect level of visibility. Yeah, there's not like hyper-visibility. One of my friends did her honours thesis on the portrayal of slut walk in the media and found the opposite that was the media just focused on the girls that were wearing next to nothing and didn't focus on the many other people in the background that were wearing um, clothes that they were assaulted in or something else. And so there's never the level of visibility that's...
2: Yeah whereas, yeah, whereas if it's a Muslim community event, exactly. you can guarantee it's the woman in the headscarf. will exactly. be in the photo and, the yep. other, you know...
1: Mm. Shakira, I wanted to ask you a bit more about that because um, you've spoken uh, uh, about the catch twenty two of being a Muslim woman in Australia, and how they must respond to these twinned representations of both victim and aggressor, um, particularly in the context of public space, where you've said that Muslim women, w- sorry, Muslim women are allowed into public space on the condition that they accept the capacity and the entitlement of its dominant forces to reprove them for the perceived breaches of etiquette. Could you reflect a bit more on that for us and I guess think about, you know, should we be considering and redesigning our protest actions to account for the many women whose daily experiences of police, racism and ableism may mean that street-based action poses a greater uh, real or, or perceived risk? big question sorry
2: i mean i do like that isn't just in cyberspace i do like going to actual marches and actual walks except i kind of just tend to be able to turn up for the you know little rally at the beginning and then say see us have fun bye you know and i think there ought to be ways to make that less physically difficult or at least to make it that people who can't manage to yeah, and the jostling is uh, and all of that kind of thing makes it. Difficult. Although, mind you, if the crowd's big enough, I went to the to the to cover the Olympic torch rally. If you remember when that was coming through town, and yeah, it, it's. I thought I wasn't able to do that anymore, but if the crowd's big enough, it's fine. There's nowhere to fall. You just get supported by the weight of the surrounding multitudes. It was, it was <laughs> awesome, you know. But you know, so like, there's that. But yeah, no, it's. Um, yeah, Muslim women have been quite assertive about um, wanting to stake their entitlement to have their religion be visible in public despite the negative attention that it d- just draws, despite fatwas that have been issued by various male scholars saying, oh, you don't actually have to wear that th- that scarf every time you leave the house. If it's going to get you beaten up, it's all right. You can take it off. But on the whole, they haven't... Taken, they haven't taken that course, um, and and it does signify a Muslim. And I will say that the guys have started. It's a bit hard to tell because the hipster beards started around the same thing. There was one stage kind of around Cronulla when the woman said, well, if we're supposed to wear our headscarf, and there's actually as much in the Quran about beards as there is about headscarves, and uh, where's yours? And so then I think in response to that, the guys did start wearing the, the growing out their Salafi beards, but the hipsters came in at the same time, and so the hipster, Muslim, <laughs> hard to tell, but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> One type of surname gets stopped stop more often at the airport, though, so that's always a tell. But, yeah. And, um, yeah, so... But, yeah, it's... Inter- uh, but, like, the ones who are most often reproved for being, like, rude, though, are women who cover their faces because apparently Australians, when we go about our daily life, we just smile at strangers on the street all the time, you know, and we know how we're feeling in our expressions and we're so friendly and, we're, and like... It reminds me of a conversation with a fairly recently arrived migrant from, from India who wasn't Muslim, by the way, who was Hindu. So they all have these closed faces. They, you know, they're sort of just... And we do. We have these expressionless and preferably augmented by headphones so nobody's going to be tempted to make casual conversation that says, you know, leave me the fuck alone. You know, don't try to engage. Take that smile somewhere else. And, um, and yet, when it comes to a woman who covers her face, that's incredibly rude. That is hindering facial communication, which is essential to the running of Australian society, apparently. Yeah, thank you. Um,
1: I think that's an interesting segue, I guess, for me to um, acknowledge that when I asked... Um, who are we mourning for, I was actually stealing the words of a writer called uh, Sameya Muyin, who wrote a fantastic piece in Overland um, after the Prince's Park Vigil. Um, and she really asked, you know, who are you mourning for and questioned whether gendered violence and drawing attention to the women who, um, you know, don't make um, don't make the news, I guess, or, or who died in their homes, and particularly women of colour um, who have suffered... Um, you know, and she gave the example of Aboriginal women who have lost their cultural rights or have lost their children to racialised violence. So I guess I want to bounce out and sort of ask the panel, you know, who do we who who do we show up for and who have we missed? jessamy uh,
4: yeah, that's ever of course, of course. Um, as one of the organisers, I know, like in the weeks leading up to, or the week, not even the week, the few days leading up to that vigil there were other women that were murdered and there were women that were missed. And that was one of a few murders at the time and other ones. We're not far from King's Domain. There was a woman murdered there a few years back, a a woman of colour. There's many different sites that, you know, around Melbourne where that's happened and we don't show up for all of them and that's something that we do need to account for. And it's completely true and I know as one of the organisers that was something we did you know we did discuss and talk about in the lead up to the vigil itself that it was one person uh you know potentially signifying many but at the same time there was a reason that that had happened and it wasn't to say that uh, those other women were necessarily cared for less but that the there were reasons behind that that need to be acknowledged I think so yeah that there's definitely a bias there and it's something we need to and I mean we're talking about it here now but it's not it's not enough and if it
2: takes that much that's hard and horrible and something that, yeah, we need to acknowledge. Mm. Shakira? Yeah, I'll add on that point that I don't think there's a simple equation, again, between heightened visibility and uh, good outcomes, because some of the visibility of the case that you're talking about was News Corp digging up family history and vandalising, to my mind, as much as the guy in the park... And while the lack of publicity for those other cases is concerned, but it is, uh, compounds the trauma yeah. Yeah, when really you can't point. escape it, when it's everywhere, when it's um, not that anybody who knew was going to forget, but it, it when there's just trigger after trigger after trigger every five seconds. In, and I, I was thinking, I remember some years ago when there... Uh, woman who 'd been working at Maxine 's on Sydney Road, the strip club on Sydney Road yeah. was murdered around the same time as uh yeah as yeah. yeah as and and there was oh but there was so much more but i think that 's not really the because for one thing her family like and it it had it got a lot of media coverage it got a lot of media coverage because she was australia 's oldest stripper, and supposedly her family didn 't necessarily mm-hmm. know she was a stripper, and so like you know, and so yes, yes, so it was in the... Yes, so murder sells, murder's sensational, murder gets headlines. Mm. So it isn't just how much attention and how much um, focus and how much visibility, but also what type of visibility. Mm. You know, if it's just going to be dragging the victim's name through the mud um, or their fam- and or their family's name through the mud, mm. dragging out personal details that have absolutely nothing to do with the case, then... You know, and not letting people remember them as the person they was rather than the last horrific half hour or hour of their life. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think those those difficulties
1: and complexities and nuances mean that you know building a movement around this is very difficult. It's very fraught, and there's there's it's it's very difficult. I think to know what the what the right or, or correct way of doing something is and um, I suppose Annie, I was wanting to know what you thought about, you know, why is movement building so crucial um, as an answer to to take this forward?
3: Yeah, um, well, I suppose sort of drawing from that point, I think, um, uh, yeah, the the visibility issue is one thing, but I would, I also think sort of trying to to think about our movement building in Australia and sort of step back and look at some of the systemic issues that we face as a women's movement or movements. Um, And there there are particular types of violence or particular stories that get more traction than others. Um, And (laughs) when Gemma and I were initially talking about this this event for tonight, we we had this awful sort of discussion where we sort of talked about like, if we if we were to memorialise all of the violence, um, including um, the historical violence against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, we would literally you know have to cover the city in blood you know, and that is a tr- you know that is triggering and that is not productive and does not help movement building. Um, but it still means that there are certain peoples or certain stories that get forgotten or, or not honoured to the same degree. Um, so I think there's that, but there's also the issue that we face in, in our movements at the moment where it feels quite fractured between communities and... Um, You know, if you work for a multicultural women's organization, you work in a particular space, and you, um, and I think a lot of that fracture comes from the funding mechanisms that we all rely upon. Um, So if you work in in a multicultural space, you receive funding through a certain stream of of area of work. If you work in the family violence space, there's another. If you're working with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, there are another. And what it means is that our movements are kind... ..to a certain extent are are pitted against each other um, for funding. um, And it creates these, you know, it creates these divides... Um, that I think also get further exacerbated by the fact that we have, you know, such a, a an ongoing culture of unacknowledged um, racism in Australia, which means that, you know, like I've gone to sort of various meetings and um, focus groups where you'll talk to one group and the called group, you know, hates the... For this group and that group is pitted against that group. So we need to start addressing, like, how do we sort of build those those networks better? Um, And in terms of the question around, like, what is the importance of movement building, I think... (laughs) You know there there is so you know you could write a thesis about it, but in terms of the international um, evidence that we have, there is quantifiable proof. Like this has been documented through most of the multi-country studies that we that we run through the UN, um, where in countries where you have stronger and larger women's movements, you have lesser rates of violence against women it's um that uh, that uh, that link has been has been shown and is is documented um, and i think the the act of community mobilization is so important so again to just draw on one example so in terms of one of the most successful violence prevention programs that's been evaluated there's a program that runs in uganda called sasa and they've managed to achieve a 52% Rate of reduction in rates, of, reduction in rates of violence against women in just five years. Um, previously, an unheard of. You know, we'd assumed that it would take generations upon generations. And that program, a huge portion of its success is because it's built on the notion of community mobilisation. What they essentially do is they gra- they gather people together in groups, and they take them through this extensive. Um, education program that isn't just about uh, what is gender or a sort of basic kind of thing but takes people through a learning process to understand power um, and then takes those people and essentially trains them to be activists, though they would never call them that to their funders, but essentially trains them to take those conversations out to their communities and to the people from their taxi driver to the, the person at the cafe. Um, so, I think if, you know, if we can see that community mobilisation and community movement building is such a huge portion of stopping this problem for good, we have to get systemic and then look at, like, what is happening in our in our ecosystem, in our sphere that prevents that from happening here. Mm, that's great. Did either of you want to comment on that? No? Great. Um, um,
1: I think that's, again, a good segue. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, to start thinking about when we bi- when we are movement building what the role of online um, online lives and communities I guess have m- have made um, in recent years uh, to the ability to mobilize um, there are obviously benefits to drawing on the organizing power of Facebook um, Instagram snapchat etc um, and particularly young feminist communities online use this but What are, I guess, also the specific risks of violence that can occur um, (laughs) from those online communities? Jessamy as our resident online expert, please.
4: (laughs) I I wouldn't say that, but I love this topic. It's a PhD topic. All right. Yes, social media spaces. We all know that we can go on there and join groups and campaign and create change, whatever we want change to look like. And that's something that, you know, academics could again bang on about for quite some time what we want change to look like so yes you can join social movements, social media spaces and make change what we do need to understand and recognize is where what spaces we're using and where they came from. And everyone here knows what Zuckerberg looks like <laughs> and the how these spaces are controlled, not just Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, all of these other ones that people use are mainly facilitated by or controlled by white men. I've said for years that I'd love an alternative feminist network for this kind of organising stuff it's quite difficult. It's not easy. So, there are two the factors. If white like,
2: can manage it, surely
4: we can. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, they have managed What's it, it, called? Um, it. came out in the news, something yeah, horrific. Yeah, I guess. <laughs>
5: mm-hmm.
4: yeah it's got to happen, yeah. right? Until that point. Um, so, yeah, like a lot of organising still takes place on Facebook. And as a result, um, as Annie can testify over the last few days, I think um, we've all encountered trolling and harassment online. And that is facilitated by a platform. <laughs> ...that doesn't prioritise the needs of these kinds of campaigns or organisations... ...over the need for individuals to have freedom of speech or have their say... ...or send death threats to people or left, right and centre. So there are, and there are very real consequences to that kind of harassment online space leads to offline space it's not that one is any more or less important than the other which i would hope that by now we all understand at least from a distance what it looks like to be harassed or abused online to have your phone ringing to have your parents contacted this kind of stuff um so as a result it has a real world consequent, real world consequences online and offline consequences and so if you are organizing online it can be really useful but there are also a lot of downfalls to it.
2: I'll mm. say the old fashioned hate letter with a stamp. Oh, what happened certain, to it? Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, I still have or one. <laughs> and can, my God, this person has gone out and looked up what physical events. Yes, and spent a stamp and presumably <laughs> sent it to multiple recipients and helpfully stamped it with Make Australia Hijab Free by 2023 <laughs> on the envelope so you know that it from before you open it and see the weird kind of mm. photocopied. Newspaper clippings with—I'm going to assume it's a guy, given how often penis-sized features in all of this—and um, yeah, so like, yeah, but it does feel—I mean, which I, I used to get a reasonable number through the post. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, but um, and but now it's gone all online, and now so they seem somehow more. Um, I don't know whether it's as serious or what. I don't know yeah, when, uh, when you get Yeah, it's just offer. different. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, they, it yeah. doesn't
4: mean people can't send you a letter and we still get them. Yeah, people yeah, yeah, still get them, odd, but it's just yeah, mixed in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah it's I think
2: like every possible... You know, it's like, well, you know... But and phone calls, you know, if they're, they're, they're very multimedia. But I mean, and sorry, d- yeah, the
4: one point I did want to make that online, ca- we need to understand that it is just as important as offline spaces and the consequences are just as real and it's not obviously easy to turn off the computer. Those rules and regulations about what can be said online isn't there. Someone wouldn't come up to you and attack you in the street at the moment with this kind of stuff because there are laws surrounding that. But online, it's seen as permissible. Mm.
3: Sorry. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's... Um, It's seen as permissible but it's also this process and as a bit of a background, so we went through this, our organisation went through this a couple of weeks ago where we got um, quite massively trolled by men's rights activists Um, and I've encountered that to some extent every place I've ever worked but this was to the extent that we were receiving quite literally 5,000 um, you know pieces of hate speech death threats rape threats to to us an hour you know um, and you know the the kind of the the concept of I'll just switch off the computer um, maybe but there's also an element so after I'd gone through like a total shutdown process personally there was also just this like rising rage that was just like, Fuck you. Like, you know, we have built this beautiful online space that is by and large for and by particularly young women and girls to share their thoughts and perspectives on the world, to seek solidarity with each other and to find something positive. Like a lot of our online spaces... Um, you know, we we create, you know, memes that are positive and um, and to have that as another space where some dickhead guy gets to come in and trample it and take that away and fill it with hate speech and, like, Nazi... Sh- like, I couldn't believe the other day that my, my day was like, oh, I'm talking to some feminist hacktivists today about the Nazis. Like, that's where we're at, you know, and so... We do. There's we a
4: cost. There's a labour... There's an economic cost to the amount of money that you've lost that many, many other people have lost that aren't even paid in the first place to moderate these spaces because they're not done effectively enough in the first place.
3: Absolutely. And so that's the strategy that it, that they use and it works effectively. It d- it. Dif- detracts all of your resources, your already limited resources, into managing that situation. It means that, again, by and large, young women who are staffing and managing these spaces who, you know, are quite likely to have their own physical and historical experiences of violence have to go through that again. Um, so I really think we need to, again, as a women's movement, we need to start coming together and applying the same principles that we have learned and know work in reclaiming and making physical safe space, uh, physical space safe, um, to our online spaces, and that involves coming together and collectively, a, putting it as an agenda and saying, no, this is fucking important, and then. Having space where we can collectively start sharing, these are the strategies that we used. When they do this, you do that. Um, and starting to build that kind of network, which is how we've applied it to physical space as well.
4: Jessamy, did you have more? So you. No, no. <laughs> look, that that summarizes it beautifully. I was just thinking that yeah, that's something that's incredibly important, and it's not always just going to come from Nazis as well. There are obviously many different quarters that people will be attacked and harassed from. Sometimes, sadly, from within the feminist feminist movement. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a strategy. It's something that I think yeah, there definitely needs to be a discussion of and to price the labour on it is really important and essential because it's it's exhausting. When we organised the vigil, we had six people behind the scenes across that weekend and on the night during the vigil moderating that page for the amount of harassment that was going on. We had to call in six separate people all at once to moderate that page. It's ridiculous. And of course, no one was paid That We all just stuck our hands up because that's what we do. But yeah, it was exhausting. Shakira? Well, I think there
2: have been some prosecutions like the and, and Women too, for yeah. for racially harassing and threatening yeah. Muslim women, you know, Mariam you know, and who had to take significant time out of work and sick leave, and you know, material cost to her of that. Um, she set up a sorry, an online support which is based for people to report Islamophobic hate incidents, whether cyber hate or any form of hate, and that made her a focus for for more. Of it. And yeah, and so there was a very material cost to her in that, you know, in in setting up this support service and in and in rendering that kind of hate visit more widely visible.
4: There was probably a reason it was her because she would have been copying it on the extreme end all oh, the yes, time. Yes, she yeah,
2: was. it's sort of, I'm always a bit torn between the whole like, do we do I just make it more visible? Isn't that just giving giving them a louder microphone or you know and. Um, can't, I can't give you an answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I am a, and um, but I, I'm not saying that this is a political or a thought out kind of response. It's just what I can, um. What is most manageable for me is just the, the ignore and delete. I mean, yeah. it's not always possible, but insofar as you can, just um, yeah, I, I don't. Um, maybe very occasionally if I'm, I, but I don't tend to retweet hate messages because you know um, yeah but as I said that's not something that I would suggest everybody else should be doing the same way it's just what um, is makes me able to function
5: Mm.
2: and that's very important
1: (laughs) Um, Jessamy you've noted that um, there have been I guess a a limited number of studies that examine how um, feminists have Feminists have co-opted social media and online-based activism to produce change within the wider community. How do we know that online communities are making impact?
4: There's actually more than what there was when I started my PhD, which is great. Yes, it's happening. (laughs) It's happening. It's getting there. So there are more studies that are coming out saying that, yeah, there's change happening. And it's important to note that this change isn't just within, you know, what we understand to be Western worlds. They've been used in lots of different places. There was a brilliant set of campaigns that came out of the some the horn of africa i think a few years back about the use of hashtags so it's not and i mean you adapt it and you use what tools you have at your disposal and what's going to work so if those kind of platforms are working for you fantastic if not we need to try and find other ones but yes yeah, social media can definitely produce change that definition of change is always up in the air what do we understand what do we need to have happen is it different laws is it different regulations do we understand it to be sort of a consciousness raising approach like does it come from the bottom up or top down? Where do we negotiate that change to be from? And so that's really academic and going into it too much, sorry. But, I love, um, it. love the, it. The answer is, yeah, social media, it can get you there. It can help you start. It's not the be all and end all. But it's also not a case of... If someone tells you that just signing a petition online does nothing, that's not true either. I mean, if that's what you're, is in your capacity to do, then you do it. it it's this understanding of slacktivism is something that I you know, want to kick down a hill... ...because it's not true and it's not fair and it's not recognising... ...that people have different capacities to do different things. And like Shakira said, it's not always easy or possible to show up to marches... ...just as it wasn't for people to show up to the vigil or to other events. So online efforts can assist. It's weighing them against what you can do.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's again a good segue. Everything <laughs> is a good segue. Um, it's almost like the questions are I know it's almost like <laughs> these questions were written by me. Um, I wanted to ask, I guess, about you know we talked before about how there's been a fracturing, I guess, between you know within the movement or within different feminist organisations. I want to talk about how there have been so many different, I guess, feminist campaigns and movements. So there's Slut Walk, there's Reclaim the Night. We've got Counting Women. Um, and then we've had, I suppose, sort of specific um, re- reaction kind of demonstrations. I guess. Um, have do we need them all? Have they all worked? Are we seeing a resurgency and a and a and a in a shift toward one or or another that's becoming that's becoming more pronounced? Do you think, Shakira? Do you have a view on that? Sorry, I didn't mean to. Uh, you looked like you were sort of <laughs> no, moving the okay. microphone.
2: I'm wondering whether in some like whether it's a fracturing or just a proliferation, and whether it's also that some women or groups of women who weren't being seen so much before are now being seen, primarily various groups of women of colour, Mm. I mean, who have always been active and who have always been working on these issues for a very long and productive time, but didn't make the mainstream media, but are now rendered visible by social media, and like um Me Too started a good nearly decade before it hit Hollywood and it started with an African as you would know, an African American um gender violence activist ran a book. And um yes, but um and so and sometimes the established organizations don't take too well to the um to the new arrivals or the more or the more recent arrivals or you know I regularly have my age underestimated by, by a heap, and I don't think it's because I look particularly young. I think it's because people just don't think they've been brown, well, non non Indigenous brown people in the country for that long. It's why people think I'm like fifteen, you know, because they just don't think they've been around for much longer than that. You're not that. fifteen, so, yeah, no, oddly not. My daughter's at university, for God's sake. Anyway, so that's a really long, you know, we we that the the reason I got to that point is that these. I, you know, they're perceived as newcomers, even if they've been working on these issues for decades and have, you know, been, become very well established in their own. But they weren't seen and and, and now they're around and on the circle and seen as being like disruptive to the established order, even though they're older than the organisations that they're seen as disrupting.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jessamy. Yeah, look, let's talk about when Indigenous women got the vote. <laughs> like, let's talk about when, um, you know, women were locked out of second wave feminism because they're women of colour. Like, yeah, women, d- you know, trans women, are, you know, women of colour, queer women, they've always been there. It's just a matter of visibility, as Shakira said. So I'd, I'd also love to think that it's a proliferation, not a fracturing. There are definite points of conflict. That's That's part of it. There are definite parts and negotiations or just points of tension that are really difficult and really hard to reconcile and oftentimes they can't be because it comes down to different people's human rights or what they perceive to be violations of their human rights. So that, that is there and that is present in contemporary feminism just as it's been in other waves before too. Um, do we need them all? I'd love to hope so and think so. Um, I can't give you a rundown of every single current movement here in Melbourne. Um, but I do think that visibility to return to that earlier point is key... ...alongside more coordinated long-term efforts. Reactions are good in the sense that they give us something to do. They keep us busy. They give us a visibility. They, you know... but behind that there needs to be more long-term pushes so and I think Annie can talk to that because that's what she's you know that's what she's doing. Mm. Annie just got thrown under the bus
3: (laughs) (laughs) no 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 I mean I was thinking about I completely agree I think the fact that there is a proliferation of various movements um, uh, or banners that that women are, are forming under is brilliant and beautiful. And if if your movement is you and your four mates um, getting together, and if that feels valid and makes you feel stronger in the world, then that's a totally valid movement. Um, but in terms of campaigns, I think that that's where there's a difference. I think that um, uh, I think there's a lot of improvement and work that can be done around public campaigns around this issue um, and largely campaigns have gotten stuck in this kind of very bland awareness raising kind of space. Safety. Yeah, yeah, and not just bland but also just very disconnected from the way that people talk, the way that they confront this issue. you know, like the the quite infamous, like Australia says no is kind of the prime example. But even the contemporary kind of campaign. Well, saying th- no to again? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. Um, but so I I think that in terms of that campaigning space, where we need to move, like if we're thinking about it as public service kind of campaigns as opposed to political campaigns, we need to start moving towards more comprehensive and much much more deeply thought kind of pieces of work which again are, you know are happening in different spaces where it's yes you can have a public service kind of campaign or a tvc but then if you're not doing the work around that to build communities that come together around that issue that is then connect, connected to a legislative process like campaigns need to be multi multi dimensional
4: Multi-multi-funded, like where is the money going, and is it going to these sort of different intersectional feminist campaigns, or is it going to that bland awareness raising for no, white it,
3: exactly, exactly, it 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 doesn't go. And I think in terms of like again, if you want to take this issue very deeply, um, I personally have an issue with the fact that when we think about how much money goes from government funding towards these campaigns that then goes to particular ad agencies that are themselves like male dominated and male run and have their own internal uh, situations of sexual harassment and assault um, and really don't have the level of understanding around the issue. Um, A large large portion of my job over the years has been to sort of brief in um, ad agencies and I can almost guarantee it's almost always two men that come to meet me. And the very first question, no joke, has always... The very first thing that they say to me is, well, what about the men? Um, And I think that... But listen, I think that that's absolutely valid. Again, another thing I really want to see in Australia is better and more, again, deeper kind of programs that work with men and boys, but go beyond just this... You know, the latest ad where a guy turns around to his kids in the car and the kind of the language is just not the way that people talk to each other. It's not, you know, it's very clunky. Um,
1: it's almost like you can hear them quoting the legislative kind of amendment that was brought in to address that issue. Thank you, son, for yeah. bringing in Section 17 for Subsection 1.
3: <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it goes to this... Like part of the process of how those sort of p- those public campaigns get developed is, you know, um, women's groups do get invited to consult or to review, but it's always kind of very late in the process because the funds have already gone out and the artwork's been created. And then but if we could shift to a model where and to me I'm very passionate about like by by girls and for girls, creative agencies and creative spaces. And coming up with more grassroots, like, you know, the the sort of the campaigns and the projects that women build from the ground up themselves and how we fund those rather than kind of vacuous. Rather
1: than outsourcing to fancy consultancies run by dudes. Yeah. Um, Annie, you've answered the last question that I wanted to ask, <laughs> but I'm going to ask it anyway, um, which is a good segue. Uh, <laughs> um and that'll give our audience time to have a think about any questions they might want to ask, which we'll throw up into the audience for a Q&A. So, my question, I guess, was a typical last question, which is, what would you like to see? What do you think is going to be an effective um, strategy, I guess, for change? And how can we think about feminist movements and acts of resistance that give space for anger, but that are also healing? Um, Shakira, can I ask you to um, have a go first? Or, well, what would you just like to see? I think is probably the easiest way of doing it.
2: I don't really quite have a formula for addressing this. But I've been thinking that one of the obstacles is just the bystander effect, where something can be really plainly visible and happening you know, under these people's. Noses, but they let it go. Well, I'm thinking of the okay. It's still before the courts, and nothing's been proven. But the media coverage of the Jeffrey Rush defamation case over the past couple of days, and the um, the woman in that particular case describing how it was in front. It was very, you know, it was in a rehearsal space, and there were other, including other women who saw what allegedly happened, and but who regarded it as normal and acceptable or else who regarded the perpetrator as being too senior to defy and so nothing was done. And you have that you know, on a micro level. So very, very often it's not that something is not known, it's not that something is not visible, it's just that something is let go. And I... Years ago, like many years ago, and um, the most terrifying experience and the most traumatising experiences of my life happened very much in public and with police called in pretty fast, with multiple witnesses who, on the whole, didn't see the need to intervene. And what I think made it the most traumatic was that bystander of fact was kind of think, well, was I really so arrogant as to think that my being threatened and certainly feeling like I might potentially be killed out in public in front of lots of people would, like, you know, be a big deal. You know, that that would stop the traffic. Apparently not. Everybody can just keep going about their day. And it was that being sort of um, having your own irrelevance brought home to you in those circumstances. That was what made it... I had to do a lot of work before I could manage to venture into public space again. Sorry, I know that wasn't a, a nice feel-good. This no. is what we should do thing, because I don't have an answer to that. No, that's great, and I think um,
1: the, I mean, it it could not be more timely. I think this panel event, and um, it's been, I, I've personally felt like it's been a, it's it's actually a great time to, to have these discussions, um, given the context of. The rush case and and thank you for sharing, um, uh, Jessamy.
4: Yeah, it, it's been shit house. Yeah, <laughs> it's been awful the last few weeks and months. Um, and I know my friends have been the same. Um, so my my answer is probably not nearly as eloquent and good. Um, I have, I've had, I have so much anger, and it, it swings wildly between anger and sadness, and wanting that visibility, and not knowing what. ...will actually achieve change. And I mean like I've done a whole degree on it. I still don't have an answer on what achieves change. What I have wanted... In the lead up to the vigilant after it and in the lead up to every other thing is just to go to Parliament House and stand out the front with a megaphone and scream for hours and hours and hours. That's I would love it. Like <laughs> I don't know what it's going to achieve, but it would just I'll make me anyway. feel better. You wanna come with me? <laughs> so, and I don't Let's know go. what to achieve. Like I, I've done the megaphone down Swanson Street, I've led the marches there. It's a powerful feeling, it's a terrifying feeling, it's powerful. So I know what that feels like, but it I don't know quite yet what else is going to cut through apart from uh, like what the kind of work we're doing here now the kind of work that we've done before and a lot of work that of other people that have come before us and will come after us but it's a state of exhaustion as well and knowing that you need to step in and out of those spaces and so constantly there's help needed and constantly if you're showing up and showing support it's necessary because no one can do this kind of work it's forever so that's necessary yeah.
3: Annie? Yeah, I think um, flowing on from that, um, I'm, I'm personally really interested in t- You're right that you can't keep doing this work together and you can't... You, I just don't think you can fuel an ongoing movement on anger alone. And I think to me I'm really interested in how do we build a movement um, that recognises that um, we have a role as peace builders... It's not just stopping violence, it's not just about violence, it's about how do we build peace. And there are there are processes, uh, for me personally I, I draw a lot on um, the principles of non-violence and the tactics of non-violence um, and how do we start to create internal spaces of safety um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of sort of on a practical level for me personally it's about meditation and yoga but there are also principles around protest where it's you know how can we use strategies of de-investment um how do we use strategies that use less withdrawing labor you mean yeah yeah whether it's withdrawing labor whether it's rather than standing up at a rally it's a sit-in like whether it's de-investment in particular companies the very concept of um rather than trying to combat the system that exists with the equal amount of anger and force against it, drawing energy and drawing drawing back drawing away um, but then to the to the final question and hopefully to end it on a positive note, I was thinking about that aspect of again, how do we create healing around around this as well or how do we have a movement that incorporates that? And to me, um, a huge portion of that is about how do we um, how do we give space to the creatives, the artists, the musicians who – and one of the – I'm quite new to Melbourne, um, and one of the things I love about Melbourne is that we have such a vibrant creative community, who, a feminist creative community, um, and to me that is – that is the healing way to recognise and galvanise. It's around, and this is also because I grew up a kid in the 90s who, you know, grew up a riot girl. Um, You know, those spaces where young women in particular come together around the music that they love, the art that they love, that is your healing way to take the anger and the hatred and the fucking frustration that you feel and turn it into something beautiful you know you eat the anger and turn it into something beautiful oh that's a wonderful observation um thank you
1: so much um i think each of those responses was really perfectly segued on from one another um i'm just going to open it now to QA in case Um, anybody has a particular question for one of the panellists please raise your hand and then our friend Rover. yes over here
0: hi um, thank you so much to all of you it's been a really um, relishing discussion Um, I guess I don't have a specific question for one of you but I wanted to ...talk to an experience that I think is very common amongst women... ...or the women in my life, which is carrying around this certain um, burden... ...or a sense of the labour around um, engaging the, the men in your life... Um, ...in terms of understanding your experience... ...and the issues you care about and why you care about them. And I find this so exhausting and I end up being at loggerheads with with men who I've considered friends and allies and then feeling crushed when they act like my issues are irrelevant to them. And uh, uh, an issue that has been a repeated... um, ..has occurred repeatedly um, with certain men in my life has been around the term toxic masculinity, where it has been a massive trigger and they've just shut down to argue with me about it and... I guess my question is, is it worth engaging in that labour? Um, I'd like to hear your perspectives on this. Is it worth women engaging in the labour of constantly trying to prove their relevance um, and the reason behind these sorts of um, concepts, or should we simply try to be louder? Great question. Thank you. I could have asked that question, honestly.
4: (laughs) I I know. I I feel it. I have been there and I mean I just did a quick glance around here tonight and thought it's not there's not a 50 50 split in this audience or like a split of how many men are here versus how many women versus how many people that are non-binary so there's some of that answer there already I feel you and I've had those discussions as to whether it's worth it I think it's always it's always contextual and to an extent you would probably know that answer dependent on the person and dependent on how you were feeling at the time. And uh, before I jump into any of those discussions, I kind of evaluate where I'm at and if I have the capacity to answer it and what thanks I might be... Exp- not even thanks, but what is going to come out of it for me in the long term. some, So sometimes it can be purely selfish if I think I can actually make a change or make a dent and at other times it's a bit of a lost cause and I just walk away. Um, I don't have a pretty answer for you, so...
2: Yeah, I've got to say I very rapidly get to the point where I say I have a neurological disease plus there's an apocalypse to prevent I don't have time to educate you in the bin. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um,
3: uh, <laughs> uh, any other question out there? Well, I was just... Sorry.
2: Sorry, I was just,
1: Annie.
3: If I can just add to one point... I. Like, I would break it into two th- sort of issues, right? I think there is absolutely more work that we need to do with men and boys. Um, and what uh, what we know from the research is that there are particular... Um, Particularly young boys, sort of around 15, that's where we're having spikes in their kind of level of. Um, so we do this massive survey, um, the National Community Attitudes Survey, um, and we can see that there is this drop off at around 15, where boys are increasingly finding it accept, you know, some form of violence acceptable. We need to develop programs that, and we have, you know, healthy relationships programs in schools, but we need more programs, more campaigns that are targeted there. So that's on like one level, on a programmatic level. On a personal level, I think that there is you know, you step out when you need to step out and I think it is 100% valid to say to people, this is not my responsibility, this is your responsibility to educate yourself um, because we can't, we can't carry that burden and there is, you know, there's um, there's also an aspect of, um, you know, there was that great piece in the New York Times called The Reckoning and it was sort of... Um, to me, that was, like, the best title ever, and I agree with it. Like, at this juncture in human history, you know what? I actually don't really... <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, but I actually don't really care if you have an issue. I don't care, like, if the, if the way up is that a couple of men get wrongly tried versus the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of women who have had to face sexual harassment or assault, I don't really care. <laughs> and... So, um,
4: Oh, sorry. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And just to add to that, you know, there are layers to this that aren't just men. It's white women who are feminists who are being educated constantly by women of colour, by trans women, by queer queermen and so on and so forth. So there's layers and layers of education that obviously, as you probably know cut beyond just men and so it's the work that you know we do as feminists to educate ourselves from others and like there's many layers of work that are constantly going into it but if you you need to be prepared to meet the person halfway it, that's educating you more than halfway a lot of the time and back it up mm. awesome.
1: thank yeah. you i think we had a question over here um yeah, just going all the way over, over there. under there <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> Hello. Thanks to the panelists for some really incredible insights. My question was picking up on the theme of tonight's discussion around designing safe spaces for uh, for our movement Um, and picking up on the topic of healing. So, one of the challenges of our movement is that we're all hurting, we all uh, have experienced trauma, and that a big part of what's been happening in the last 18 months, two years, is that that there's been an increase of space for people's hurt to be visible but at the same time it has that dual impact of of triggering people at the same time so in thinking about how we can design safe spaces for women uh, that are empowering how can we give space to both those that need to heal and those that need voice and space for their anger just an easy question great question (laughs) Oof, just out. That's a good question. Um anybody else?
4: <laughs> I I have an answer briefly, Great. like a really specific kind of answer in it to do. It's to do with how we've designed rallies and marches in the past and it was something that Shakira was touching on earlier about how to make rallies and marches and that kind of stuff intersectional or and accessible and as, as friendly or as open and as safe as they can be. So if we're talking about safe space design and how to heal and give voice to anger. I mean there are classic sort of ways that activists do this where people can stand up and have their say and everyone can get up and have their say and that kind of stuff. So that can help with the anger. In terms of the healing, that's that's difficult and I think that comes that does not necessarily come more easily. We, at SlutWalk, Walk, we do things to protect people who are attending. We really try to ensure that there are people there to assist, there are people on site that are equipped to deal with emotional... Um, so people who are experiencing trauma, there are quiet spaces, safe spaces, this kind of stuff, places where people can go... We do as much as we can beforehand to um, ensure that there's a no, you know, dickheads policy for people that show up to harass or to hurt and we put bodies on the line to ensure that that happens. It's, again, it's difficult and contextual to each specific one. The healing can be harder to give voice to than the hurt a lot of the time, which I'm I'm sure there's an irony somewhere in there. Yeah. I'll just quickly respond to that as
1: well. I think um, in organising tonight, one of the the gaps that I was really aware of when trying to comp- compile the panel was um, design um, and having an art, an artist or a designer or a geographer um, be there to kind of help guide, I guess, um, and, and underpin it with with some some theory, um, I think, and, and to sort of help us kind of step through as activists or as feminists in that movement, how can we, what structures um, does their expertise bring us that we're missing at the moment? So um, we weren't able to get um, that presence uh, or that expertise, I think, um, on the panellists, unless anybody wants to reveal they have, they have to be a geographer as well. <laughs> um, but I think there's that, that's, that's a big missing part and maybe that's where we need to take it next.
4: It, it's been done, sorry, so like hashtags have been mapped, so online spaces, sorry, online geography, which yes, is a thing, that, that's that been happening, those places have been mapped before, so you can see online visibly spaces like me to provide both the hurt and the healing offline spaces, of course, are a bit more difficult. You, did you have your mic up to... Yeah.
3: No, well, I was I was just going to say um, in terms of that, um, yeah, the, yeah, de- the design aspect or creating, you know, there is this, um, this focus on the uh, the problem or the scale of the problem or the scale of the hurt. Um, but uh, and the activity that's kind of around you at the moment is actually a mapping activity where we wanted to provide an element of relief, um, which is we want you to map out what are your safe spaces, what are the spaces that make you feel connected to your community. And that is an equally important Um, uh, map or piece of the puzzle for us so that we're not always as a movement sort of cast into the the negative but we also recognize that there is there are incredible connections between us all and that we have that strength together Um, so that's sort of like that's a mapping activity but in in terms of um, broader sort of design principles. Again, I think that the the space there, you know, to involve designers, artists, um, people in in dreaming the world that we want, um, and that to me is. Um, That's the beauty. What we're all working towards is to try and create this world that we don't know what it is yet, you know? Like, we actually don't know what a world free from violence is. We say it a lot, but we don't know what it is. And so we do... We need the dreamers there to visualise that for us and to give us the hope to move forward. Thank you. Um,
1: I think we might have time for one more question before we'll have a drinks break. Um... Any other questions? Yeah, sure, up the back. Thank you, Rover Mike.
5: (laughs) Can you hear me? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, thank you for your talk. I'm a queer female landscape architect. I've done urban design as well. And I've also got training in Safer by Design. Um, which I did formally through the New South Wales Police Force, but that was after doing reviews for four years. Um, So from those experiences, I guess I inherently, um, when I approach design, have how we can make spaces safer. And I think that there's a number of ways that we can do that. Um, But I guess I can only do that if the brief is asking for it and if then when I respond to that brief and I say I'm going to do these um, extra consultations with this community group or I'm going to do extra site walks at day and night or um, I'm going to meet with whoever else, um, that when I put that submission in, the reviewers are going to mark it high because uh, in government, you know, there's a procurement process and evaluation and all that. So... uh, I guess the question (laughs) is... uh, um, Because there was a lot of referring to that the design process should be... More women should be involved in the design process. Um, I think there are a lot of um, women involved. But um, I wonder whether the panel have um, been involved in the evaluation of um, um, tenders or written briefs or gone to... Um, local and state government and says you want to be involved and write parts of it because, you know, I, yeah, there's room for that. We will get those briefs and we can work together. But if it's not in the briefs, then there's no money for it. That is just such an excellent question. Thank you. Um, that it wasn't much of a question. No, <laughs>
1: I think it was great and I, I, I totally get it. And, and I think it's it's good to put it back on to say, well there is a, a, a market or there are people that are willing to do the work if we can um, make sure that it's in our briefs and our contracts and we're ensuring that we're, we're getting the work done by the people that have capacity and expertise. Does anybody have a response from... Yeah, Annie.
3: Yeah, I think it's such a it, it's an absolutely crucial part and I think that um, the nice thing about being in Victoria where we've had the, you know, world's single largest um, investment in violence prevention... Um, is that it is starting to happen so in safe and strong the state strategy there is a um, there is an outcome that is focused around like gender mainstreaming within the within the vps within the public service because it's not just about getting the briefs but it's also making sure that all of those policy makers and the planners and the everybody Like, we can't just rely on one amazing person or, you know, create a team to write the briefs. We need every single person to be able to think critically and through a gendered lens. And I think uh, that process is definitely starting and happening. It will take time. Um, But I would love to have a chat afterwards to, you know, um, if you think that there are processes that... Or if you have ideas around how we could be as a movement more involved in that, um, absolutely, and particularly around the procurement side as well, I think it's a it's a great area for investigation. Yeah, look, I
4: I would have loved to have been approached at some stage individually. I can recognise that I don't have the time or the labour upholding all of the individual other things that I've done and I think that would speak to a lot of the activists who are unpaid for their work. For the people that um, work in a professional capacity like Annie and lots of other incredible women, yeah, they're there and they should definitely be tapped and approached and that kind of stuff for it. For those of us who are working elsewhere within it, there's not that capacity to, unfortunately, approach individual governments with this. But, yeah, for those organisations, yeah, absolutely.
1: Fantastic. I think that's a a great question um, to to end on. And um, uh, Jessamy, Annie and Shakira, thank you so, so much um, for contributing your time tonight. I'm very, very grateful. Um, One of the minor joys in my life um, recently has been been that continued and ongoing dedication to education and to continually trying to meet, make sure that I'm um, updating myself and um, the, it's been a fantastic process for me personally and also, um, I guess, the friendships that I've made through it, which have been really nice. <laughs> um, thank you so much to everybody for coming along as well. It's been – I've just really loved this conversation and I hope you found it interesting. Um, please go and get a drink and if you can, please do stick around for um, that design-led workshop um, which um, Annie and the Equality Institute will be kicking off um, in about 10, 15, 20,
4: maybe. There's a deep-set irony as well that it's Halloween and they've put the feminists on stage. Yeah, <laughs> So, we're you know, happy, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. <laughs> if, you, if, you do, if that's Did your you? thing. And, yeah, otherwise, thank you as well, Thanks. Gemma, for organising this. Thank
0: yeah. you. OK. Thank you. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.